Well, good morning and welcome once again to our virtual service. Um, we continue this morning looking at First John, um, our series in First John. Remember that we started last week by looking at um, First John and, and, and looking at those three um, tests um, that um, gives us assurance, the theological test, the moral test, and the ethical test. Um, so we, we, we're going to um, look at this morning, First John chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4, and we're looking at um, it under the title of the Word of Life, the Word of Life. Let me read from God's Word, and then we'll continue to hear what God has to say to us this morning through His Word. First John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, this is what the Word of God says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to him. That which is we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you with joyful hearts, um, hearts that are full of joy because of your word. Indeed, your word speaks to us and it uh, builds us and draws us to yourself. As we hear your word this morning, may you um, shape us, may you um, make us um, uh, a people after your own heart, that we may glorify and exalt you as we draw near to you. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen. Now, I want to ask you a question as we look at this sermon. I want you to think with me. I think, what would it look like if Satan really took over the city of Rustenburg? I mean, if he had his hand in every part of what's going on in Rustenburg. Over 60 years ago, uh, Pastor Donald Gray Bunsen preached a sermon that was broadcast on CBS Radio where he pondered what it would look like if Satan took over Philadelphia. Michael Horton recounts the story in his book, Christless Christianity. This is what he says. He says, Bunsen speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets will be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. Where Christ is not preached. And, 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 and the churches would be full every Sunday, but Christ is not preached. So basically what, what he's saying is that nice people in nice churches where Christ is not preached. That is, that's what a city would look like if Satan really took over. 
in this city, everybody will be lulled to sleep, thinking they are safe and secure. The, the, the soundtrack of this city would not be music that celebrates immorality. It would be a soundtrack that uh, for, 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 for the city. The soundtrack for the city would be nice and soft. It would be a pleasant tune that lulls people to sleep thinking they are safe and secure. The, the, the problem with this lullaby is that it leaves Christ out. It, it leaves out the one thing that actually can make us safe and secure. You see, in this city, everybody is, should be having nightmares of their impending doom. But instead they think they are just fine, they are sleeping safe and sound. We, we hardly live in a, in a nice world with nice people, of course, but we live in a world that thinks, that we, that thinks we are doing just fine without Jesus. There, there is plenty of religion, but most of it doesn't need Jesus. According to sociologist Christian Smith, the dominant religion of the day, and I think um, it's also spreading in, in our country, it is what he calls moralistic uh, therapeutic deism. Now, this is, an, is not an official religion. It is just what most people really believe. Uh, what is moralistic the uh, therapeutic deism? Um, what is it? What, what, what does it mean? It can be summarized in five points. First of all, God created the world. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. And fifthly, good people go to heaven when they die. That is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what's the problem with this religion? Uh, this religion, at the heart of this religion, is the fact that it does not need Jesus. This religion doesn't say anything about our sin problem. It says nothing about the fact that before a holy God, we will face the judgment of God. And, and that without Jesus, we are without hope and without God. This religion doesn't need God to become a man. This religion doesn't need Christ to, to die for our sins. Says, just be nice and everything will be good. This is a Christless religion. And this is what most people believe in our country even today. This is what many so-called evangelicals, many so-called Christians believe and teach. Last week we learned that we can have assurance of salvation if you truly believe. We, 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 can, we can sleep safe and secure. We can give an affirmative answer to the question, am I really a Christian? That's why um, the, the, the book of 1 John was written. But, but we also learned that assurance of salvation only comes to those who examine themselves. 1 John is like a doctor's exam room. It, 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 it's a place to go to get a spiritual checkup. How does John give his spiritual checkup? He gives three tests. We saw last week the theological test. In other words, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The, the moral test. Our, our belief must be accompanied by a transformed life. The social test. I said the 
ethical test in the introduction, but it's the, 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 the social test. Our belief must be accompanied by a transformed love for other believers. In other words, assurance of salvation is available, but it's only available to those who pass the three tests given by John. The, the challenge is there. Um, uh, there are many things in, in, the spi- in, in the cultural air that are seeking to infect our spiritual health. Actually, we are even seeing infection in the church. There are many things that are taking traditional biblical Christianity. And Christless Christianity is one of them. In this environment, we, we need to have a checkup to make sure we are not infected. John expects his readers, um, that his readers will, will, will pass the test and receive the clean bill of health. And, and that is my hope for you as well. I hope that you are assured of your salvation as you examine yourself. Or as John says in chapter 5, it is my hope that you believe in the name of the Son of God and may know that you have eternal life. But if there's a problem with your spiritual health, I hope that you will find it before it's too late. This morning as we step into John's spiritual exam room, we are going to be tested on our theology. We are going to make sure that we are solid on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want to draw your attention to John chapter 1 as we have read, as we specifically verse 1 to verse 4. And in these verses what we see, we see two implications on why it is important to to, to believe the message that Jesus is the God-man. Two implications on why it is important to believe the message that Jesus is is the God-man. In other words, we're looking at the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and why it is important to believe that. First of all, you must believe that message that Jesus is God-man to have eternal life. To, to have eternal life. We believe that message in order to have eternal life. Just think about it. You, you can't separate the message from the man. Or to be more specific, more precise, you must believe the message that Jesus Christ is the God-man to have eternal life. This point hangs on a key phrase in verse 1, the word of life. What is the word of life? There are two options here. It's either it's referring to the man, Jesus Christ, as the source of life, or it's the message the gospel that that imparts life. Which is it? Well, I, I, I think it's both here. John's message is embodied in a man, the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Let me explain that. Look at verse 1. John is essentially saying the same thing he, he said in the first chapter of, of his gospel. And when he said, in, 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 in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, Jesus is God. He is the the word of God. He is the word of life. Right? And this word of life became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus entered the world, God became a man. How do we know this? Well, John and the other apostles actually witnessed it. And they wrote it down as a testimony for us. Uh, Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Look at verse 1 and 2. 
John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have had, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, God became a man and this truth comes to us through the authoritative testimony of the apostles. The apostles witnessed that they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard him with their own ears. They touched him with their own hands. They, 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 they came to believe that this Jesus was none other than God himself. The fact that Jesus Christ is the God-man is so important that John wants his readers to know that he has evidence. He was an eyewitness. This is the best evidence that could be provided in the ancient world. Eyewitness accounts are important in our day as well. Obviously, in, in law, an eyewitness plays a critical role. The, the, the testimony of, of an eyewitness can make or break a case. But it's not only in law that we value eyewitness accounts, right? Eyewitness testimonies. Think about sales and marketing. The most effective marketing is through testimonials. When someone starts, starts telling a real life story about how a product changed their life, it's much more powerful than simply reading the benefits at the back of the box. If you want to try out a diet plan, you want to hear from someone else who tried it and it worked for them and you see the results. If you're going to take a nice vacation, you want to talk to someone else who's made the trip. You want to learn about the size to see and which ones are a waste of time, which restaurants to eat in, etc. Personal, real-life testimonies are powerful. John pulls out the, the eyewitness testimony card here because the point he's trying to make is, to, is so important. It's very important that, that, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. The apostles saw it with their very own eyes. It's a, it's a historical reality. You see, everything, everything in the rest of the letter rises and falls on this very point. The gospel itself rises and falls on this point. Jesus is the word who became flesh in real life and in real history. You have to believe this. You see, the, the foundations of Christianity would crack and fall apart if this were not true. Christianity cannot stand without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, without the fact that Jesus Christ became man. Jesus is the word of life. He is a source of life. But the gospel is also the word of life. It is the message that imparts eternal life. You can't separate the message from the God-man. We see, without the incarnation of God, the love of God would never be known. Without the incarnation, there would be no good news at all. You must believe the message that Jesus is the God-man to have eternal life. There were people in John's day who were denying that the word became flesh. 
there's a major problem with this. If you deny the incarnation, you cut the heart of the gospel. Christianity cannot survive without the fact that Jesus Christ took on flesh and became man. There are two major problems with denying Jesus is both fully man and fully um, fully man and fully God, as or as as his scroll puts it, he's truly man and he's truly God. The first problem that arises when you deny that fact is that if 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 Jesus isn't a man, then he's not qualified to pay for our sins. He's not qualified to pay for our sins. You see, a, a humanity or man is the one who is guilty of sin. Therefore, man must pay the penalty for sin. In chapter 2, verse 1, we are told that if anyone sins, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and also for the sins of the whole world. But if Jesus was not man, he could not be our advocate. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life that we, 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 that we, all, we have all failed to live. And he paid the penalty for our sin by shedding his own blood. If he isn't a man, he couldn't have lived the life that man has failed to live. If he isn't a man, he couldn't have shed his own blood for our sins. If Jesus isn't a man, then he is not qualified to pay for our sins. Secondly, if you deny this fact that Jesus Christ became man, if Jesus isn't God, then he's not able to pay for our sins. He's not able to pay for our sins. You see, only God can pay for the sins of the whole world. The debt of humanity, the, the, the debt humanity owes God is so great that only God is big enough to pay for it. Our national debt is now at about um, four, four trillion, uh, four trillion. I, I don't know if that is accurate. I, I searched it on, on, on Google um, um, the day before yesterday. Um, the, the, the national debt is $4 trillion. No one can pay that debt by himself. You see, there are many people with a lot of money, but no one person has that much money. Our sin is a much bigger problem than a financial debt. No human has anywhere near the resources to deal with the sins of the world. Only God can pay our debt. Salvation is from God. You see, only man is qualified to pay for our sin. Only God is able, only man, the only man that is qualified for, for our sin, only God is able to pay for our sin. Jesus is the only one who is both fully God and fully man. Therefore, only Jesus can save us from our sins. Without the God-man, there is no good news. There is no gospel. You can't separate the message from the man. You can't take out Christ out of Christianity. Without the incarnate, crucified Christ, there is no forgiveness of our sins. You must believe the message that Jesus is the man is the God meant to have eternal life. This is where salvation and assurance of salvation come from. You must believe this. 
Now, I suspect some of you today believe that message. And, and if that is the case, you, you can have assurance of salvation. But it's frightening to see what's happening in Christianity these days. It is not that Christians are denying the incarnation. Christians are not denying the fact that Jesus, the God-man, came to die for our sins. But in increasing number, many Christians are not emphasizing the gospel in their message and in their ministry. What I hear a lot of uh, a lot in, in evangelical circles is simply a new form of legalism, or what Larry Osborne calls accidental Pharisaism. That the message and ministry of many evangelicals is all good about it's all about the good we can do for for God, and really about what God has done for us in Christ. It's about feed the hungry, take care of the poor, clothe the naked, care for the widows and orphans. All these things, yes, they are good and we must do them. They should be the mark of Christians who have been saved by grace, but they never end us God's favor. They can't save us at all. Therefore, they shouldn't be the dominant message in our churches. If the main and dominant message people hear week in and week out is do good and be better, then why do we need the incarnation? Why do we need the fact that Jesus Christ died for us? Why do we need Christ crucified? These people aren't denying that Jesus is God in the flesh. And they are not denying that Christ died for our sins. They are just not emphasizing it. They are just not pressing that button even more. They are assuming the gospel. And there's a significant challenge with assuming the gospel. As D.A. Carson says, when, 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 when we assume the gospel in one generation, we lose it in the next. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, he says, we have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. The most dangerous person is the one who does not emphasize the right things. You see, we can't, we can't afford to lose the gospel in any generation. Everything hangs on the fact that God became a man and that Christ died for our sin. But therefore, we need to emphasize this in our message and in our ministry and in our lives. When the gospel is not the dominant emphasis in our message, we lose the foundation of assurance of salvation. Instead, we start doing like other religions of the world do. You see, Christless religions rely on good works for assurance of salvation. When we begin doubting our salvation, we think, I just need to try harder and be better. But, but that is, if that is where your assurance of salvation lies, you will never have it. Salvation is grounded in who God is and what God has done, not in who we are and what we have done. You see, Jesus, the God-man, it is about him, and he died for our sins. This is the only message that saves. It is the only message that assures of salvation. Do you believe it? I hope you do. Is this the emphasis of your life? And I hope it is. You see, you can't separate the message from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the first implication, that you must believe the message that Jesus is the God-man in order to have eternal life. Second, the second implication that we see in this, verse, in this passage 
is that you must believe the message that Jesus is the God-man to be a member of the true church. To be a member of the true church. The, the second thing we learn in this theological test is that you can't separate the message from membership. Or, or to be more precise, you must believe the message that Jesus is the God-man to be a member of the true church. Now some of you may be thinking, there he goes again, talking about church membership. Where is that in the passage? There's a reason why I use the word membership here. It has to do with the word fellowship in verses um, 3 and verses 4. Let, let, let's reread those verses. This is what he says. That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son with his son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete he's proclaiming a message to the churches he's writing to and as we've seen he's telling them that you can't separate the message from the man you can't separate the message that gives eternal life from the son of God who gives eternal life you must believe that Jesus is God in flesh it's only by believing this message that a person can be assured of eternal life we've seen that but he adds something new here. That there's a reason why he wants them to pass the theological test. You must believe this message to be a member of the true church. That's what he means when he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship here is not merely talking about relationships with other Christians. It's talking about a person's church affiliation. Right? He's saying you can't be a part of our church if you don't believe this message. In John's day, people denied Jesus was the Son of God who came in the flesh. And those people went out of the true church because they were never really part of the church in the first place. These people were proclaiming to have fellowship with God, but they didn't have fellowship with God. And because you can't have fellowship with God... You, if you deny that Jesus is God, was God in the flesh, uh, these people didn't live, uh, live well enough. They were trying to get other people who were still in the true church to come over to their fellowship. In our day, this would be like a group of people living CBC and joining a church that denies the deity of, of Christ and then trying to get some other people to join them. The churches John was writing to were true fellowships, and that is true churches. You see, a true, a true fellowship or a true church is, is made up of members who have true fellowship with God and who believe the right things about Jesus. Now, God doesn't want his people to leave a true fellowship and go over to a false one. He wants his readers to stay in a church that believed the biblical gospel. People who have fellowship with God should be in churches that are full of people who have fellowship with God. The people who believe Jesus is the God-man who came to save us from our sins should be in churches that believe that Jesus is the God-man who came to save us from our sins. And I want you to notice something here, something very significant in verses 3 and 4. John is making an intimate connection between assurance of salvation and being in a church that teaches the right things about Jesus. 
You see, to have assurance of salvation, you must believe the right things about Jesus. You must believe that he is the God-man who died for our sins. A, a, a local church fellowship who believes the right things about Jesus should only let people into membership who believe the same message. If you remember of a church, what your church believes says something about what you believe. If your church believes the right things about Jesus and they affirm um, they affirm they, they affirm that you yourself believe the right things about Jesus, that gives assurance. But if you're a part of a church who denies the gospel or, or doesn't emphasize the gospel, that also says something about what you believe. John wants his readers here to stay in true churches. The, the only way his, his joy will be complete. There are some lessons to learn here about belonging to a church and about what type of church a person should belong to. It's important for true believers to be part of a local church that believes the right things about Jesus and emphasize the right things about Jesus. And I, I would go so far as to say it is important for a true believer to join a church that believes and emphasizes the right things. When you do, you are letting the church do what it's called to do, to affirm your profession of faith. And this is a very practical way to examine yourself on the theological test given to us by John. At CBC, we, we think that membership in the local church is important. We think that the local church has been given the authority to recognize a true profession of faith in Christ. And, and one way we assess a true profession of faith is by asking people if they agree with our statement of faith. Uh, listen to what our statement of faith says about Jesus. This is what it says. It's, it's, um, if you want to access our statement of faith, it's on our, our web website. Um, this is what it says. It says, we teach that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, possesses all the divine excellencies. And in these, he is co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal with the Father. You see, by choosing to join CBC, you are saying, I believe that. Because this, this church believes that. And by joining CBC, you are making a public statement about what you believe. And when we accept a person into membership, we are making a public statement about what you yourself believe. And this is a very practical way to examine yourself on, a, on the theological test given by John. It is a practical way to gain greater assurance. But there is more important way a gospel-centered church gives you assurance of salvation and helps you examine yourself. In other words, we need to hear the gospel week in and week out. We, need to, we never get past the gospel. It needs to grow deep into God's people. We need to hear that God is holy. We need to hear that we are not nice people, that we are sinners. And, and that in our sin we deserve the wrath of God, that we, we need to hear that there is nothing that we can do about our sin problem, no matter how hard we try and how many good deeds we do, we still stand guilty before this holy God, and that our only hope is in God himself, who steps in and rescues us. We need to hear the gospel. God himself took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Jesus is the God-man and he lived a perfect life in place of our sinful life and he shared his blood for us. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead, conquering the dead. And he will return one day to judge 
the living and the dead. And if we repent of our sins and believe the gospel, we don't have to fear God's judgment. We don't have to be ashamed that it's coming. We can have assurance of salvation if we believe this. We don't need a Christless lullaby week in and week out lulling us to sleep. We need to examine ourselves by the gospel. We need to look upon the cross where Jesus died, where the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. We only have eternal life through the death of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and we only have assurance of salvation through believing this message. You see, it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. Therefore, we can't take out Christ out of our message, and we must be committed to gathering with a church each week where Christ crucified is the message that is preached. This is where assurance of salvation comes, and it is available to all who believe. As we think about what Christ has done for us, especially in connection with our salvation, it is very important that our lives reflect what we believe. It is not only about what we believe, you know, head knowledge. It's what we believe that affects the rest of our lives. And we'll see that, obviously, as we, we, we continue to study um, First John. But what I want us to know is that the gospel must truly transform our lives. The theological test about what we believe must be reflected in how we live. Amen. Let us pray. Well, thank you for your word. Thank you that we, we can know and can be assured of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. May our hearts grab onto that. May our minds think about that. May our wills be conformed to following you. In the wonderful name of our Lord.